Hello, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. Today, we welcome Dr. Kenneth Hardy, who is a nationally recognized clinical and organizational consultant for the Eichenberg Institute for Relationships in New York, where he also serves as director. He's also a former tenured professor of family therapy at both Drexel University in Philadelphia and Syracuse University. Dr. Hardy has provided trainings and consultations to numerous organizations, agencies, and institutions devoted to working with at-risk traumatized children and families using a trauma-informed, racially sensitive framework. I met Dr. Hardy at San Francisco Health Department where he trained hundreds of staff, health staff, a very diverse staff, on the intersections of race, oppression, and trauma. With the goal of improving the understanding of race and trauma, its impact on patients' healthcare status, and how to serve them appropriately. So Dr. Hardy, it's such a great honor to speak to you today. Thank you, it's my pleasure to be with you. So Dr. Hardy, tell us more about yourself and how you got into the mental health field. Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania and, um, uh, you know, I, I think there was a, a, there's always a personal track into this work and there's a professional track. And I had the fortune of growing up with uh, two parents, both of whom were from the South and a great grandmother who was a granddaughter of a slave. And so as early as I can remember, I um, recall hearing uh, stories uh, and lots of painful stories um, about, um, in one sense, about humans and humanity to human, but all much of this was through a very um, powerful racial lens um, that um, I, I was exposed to these stories very early on, probably around four. And, you know, I never asked my parents or my grandmother, like, why it started so early, but I can only imagine that they understood that that was their sort of responsibility for me to have a keen sense about who I was racially going out into a world that probably would not have a warm embrace of me. Uh, and so that led me very early on. I, I, have, I have very vivid memories of it, of really spending a lot of time thinking about had all these questions about um, uh, just the human condition. And my um, grandmother, was a very deeply religious, religiously devout woman um, and was adamant that my brother, my siblings and I went to church. And uh, somehow there was an intersection of all this because I would literally go to church uh, and rather than church and religion answering questions for me, they raised lots of additional questions for me. And it wasn't even what happened in church necessarily, but I, on the pathway to church, I would literally uh, walk past, as it as were the case when I went to school, um, uh, people sleeping on the streets. And, and so um, that caught my attention. And there was something, there was something about 
the tension between what I was hearing in church uh, and what I was experiencing that as a young boy just generated a lot of questions for me. And so my, you know, um, I would go back home and raise these questions. And so I, I think it, it creates, it created a, a kind of um, uh, insatiable desire for me to have answers about all of these issues about like, why did, why did racism exist and why were there people living on the streets when there seemed to be so many houses available? And, um, you know, and I think to some extent my parents appreciated it, but on the other hand, I think that there was an impatience that they had. And now I realize that maybe it's because they didn't have answers, but, you know, would try to quiet me by giving me answers that didn't, didn't, didn't satisfy my curiosity. So it was about religion as well. You know, God works in mysterious ways. And, and so while I could hold that as a truth, but as a young, curious boy growing up in Philadelphia, it still left me with so many questions. And so, uh, and then I, and then I, I saw it in like my own family that, um, that how, um, and, and I think it was the first place I was introduced is how that my siblings and I, all biologically belonged to the same parents, and yet we were so fundamentally different from each other. I mean, um, and so in one sense, I would later go on in my professional life and uh, on shows like Oprah and Dateline about similar relationships and, and was really making the point that no two children ever grow up in the same family, and that was lo- that what first you know, captured my, my thoughts about that with my own family experience. And so, you know, that my brothers and I, one sister that, you know, in, in so many ways were very different in terms of our chosen profession and temperament and uh, you name it. Uh, and then I saw the next thing with a family I was very good friends with and the same thing with in their family and how um, one, there's two, two boys and one boy, um, was very, very studious and very accomplished and Ron is a physician now. And his brother, um, has struggled mightily much of his life with drug addiction. And so again, like there was that curiosity about how could, should two brothers in their case, but in my case, how my siblings and I grew up with the same parents, uh, and yet, turn out so so differently um, with different interests, different passions and so forth. So I think that that I, I was in search for something. I wasn't even sure what it was called at that point, but I was in some kind of academic uh, interest that would, would help me begin to answer those questions. And so it's not entirely surprising to me that I went on and, um, you know, pursued, you know, advanced degrees in psychology and family therapy and um, and it's, it, it, you know, my own life has taught me that there are no disposable experiences in life, just some way in which all the things that we, our passion and our failures and all come together, uh, to create, help to create and shape who we are. And so, uh, I, I never set out to, it was never an interest of mine to teach. Uh, I, I didn't, I, my interest in race and social inequities uh, was never a professional interest, but rather just a, a kind of personal curiosity. Um, and yet, in terms of how my 
my professional life worked out that I have found a way to seamlessly integrate uh, these issues. And so I've you know, dedicated much of my career to addressing these issues. And, and I often say when I'm giving speeches and that I, that my life in this work has helped me to appreciate that there's a critical difference that exists between one's job and one's work. And a job is connected to institutions. That's where we show up. And so I've, I've had jobs along the way that fulfilled the needs of the job, but fell short of satisfying my desire to be involved in the work that I'm interested in. Uh, we're lucky when our work and our jobs are connected. And so, and I think yeah. uh, Dr. Hardy, that, you know, those comments about the family and I can't tell you how many times, you know, I have lots of brothers and sisters and I can't tell you them under the, the times that we've said, are you from the same mom and dad? <laughs> So I think yeah, that curiosity yeah. is a really interesting one and so true that, you know, the issue of your job and your commitment of your life passion. Um, mm-hmm. And if you can integrate those and have at least a touch those two, you know, you're very lucky, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's helped me along the way because I, you know, certainly have had moments where I've stressed out about the job. Like I, you know, uh, it was kind of you in your introduction to mention both my time at Syracuse uh, University and direct, well, at Drexel, but more at Syracuse. I went there as an untenured faculty member and, you know, really as one of few faculty of color and was, you know, really stressed out for a period of time about how do I be my authentic self, but also be the person that uh, my white colleagues are going to vote on to have this lifelong relationship with. And, uh, and at some point I had this epiphany over Christmas break. I was just absolutely miserable, uh, trying to do that, uh, not speaking up when I should have spoken up and taking the daggers of racial microaggressions and smiling and pretending it didn't hurt. And, and then that's where I, I had this epiphany over the long Christmas break and said, you know, Syracuse is my job. And yet, the work I'm committed to is not relegated to a physical structure. And so uh, that if it doesn't work out at Syracuse, you don't get tenure, you know, your work continues. You take your work with you. It, it is, it is transportable. And that really liberated me tremendously. And I went back and had a, a newfound interest toward tenure. I mean, I did ultimately get tenure, but I, I sort of, you know, got it on, on my terms, so to speak, that I didn't have to sort of, um, sacrifice my integrity to do that. And, um, and so that's the value, I think, of us really embracing our work and, and recognizing that um, it, it is often not confined by four walls or office space or uh, organizational structures. And so that, that's what I'm firmly committed to. Well, I could see that. And also coming from the higher educational field and then coming into um, I, you know, I talked a little bit about your work at the San Francisco Health Department and really trying to train mm-hmm. the trainers. Um, and mm-hmm. I, uh, how is that transition going from higher education to direct providers and trying to um, improve the quality of the care for people coming into care who have faced uh, trauma and oppression in their everyday lives and it shows up as a health status or a chronic disease and Providers don't really understand that. And so the training that you did was so important for them to understand that yeah. intersectional. 
Yeah, it, it was an important transition uh, because I, you know, I often said that I, I mean, I could have easily rested on the, the laurels and the privileges of being academ- academia, particularly once I was tenured. Uh, and yet, um, I absolutely love teaching. I love the, I mean, I, I, I always assumed that my role as a professor was that of an activist. And so it was an extraordinary privilege to be in a situation where, you know, I had an opportunity to cultivate developing minds and getting people to think critically about the human condition in ways that, you know, that I thought were important. Um, but also it was quite limited. And so I think like the work with uh, the San Francisco Department of Public Health, uh, you know, provided a, a much bigger reach to, to actually be able to work directly with people who are on the ground, working in the trenches, who have an opportunity to transform people's lives, but also um, was sort of mired by their own suffering and oppression as well. So there was an element of that work that um, that was very akin to teaching because there was a didactic component and yet there was a piece of it that was also very you know i often said this it was not therapy but there was certainly something that happened in the space that was therapeutic for people it was nothing more than having uh workers of color come in uh and to be able to talk about their experiences in a way that they were validated and people could hear and to see the connections between their lives and the communities that were that they were serving, uh, and I think for like white participants, it was um, seeing them go through this process where they recognized that that their whiteness and their station in life was not inconsequential, that it did have something to do with um, the delivery of services and how services were received, and I just I always thought that in the area of health disparities that the one examined dimension was looking at the the provider, the role of the provider. And so there's something as simple as taking medication. If a patient doesn't um, find the provider trustworthy, then you're, in all probability, you're not gonna have high compliance to uh, taking medication, even if that medication is good for the well-being of that person. And so, I think we live in a, in a society where there are these, you know, huge divides. Sometimes they appear as impenetrable divides uh, along race and class and sexual orientation and gender. And um, that most of us who are prepared as providers uh, don't receive a whole lot of training in that area in terms of how you navigate these dimensions of diversity within the context of our work. Uh, and they're always there. And so the work in San Francisco, the part of public, I appreciate that that space was created for um, a very heterogeneous, diverse group of professionals to have this experience. And I felt really privileged and honored to be in a place where I could help shape and cultivate some of that. And also, you know, hoping that that it would have some direct impact on the lives of, of people who were being served. Well, I can definitely tell you have an impact on the staff. I can't tell you. I've never experienced white staff coming to me and starting the conversation as a white person. I just need to tell you how important this training was to me. Well, thank you. I really really appreciate that. I consider it, you know, a significant piece of work that I've done. I I do a lot of this work, and I I think it's um, what I appreciated about that was, was that, potential it had to reach lots of people and 
you know, that's a privilege to be in a position where you can impact people who have have the opportunity to impact others. And so I'm just, I, I was always glad I had the opportunity to do it. Well, that, that, I think you did a wonderful job and I think you uh, touched many people and, and that work is still going on, I know. Um, I do know yeah. that um, the issue that um, I wanted you to explain a little bit about trauma-informed care because, um, you mm-hmm. know, the audience, it's a new um, area and field, although, you know, you've been in it a while, but um, give us a little bit of a, uh, an example or uh, understanding of trauma-informed care. If a, if a provider is well-trained in that, what's the difference in, in the quality of, of the um, work that they do with uh, our community members? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I've, for one, I've been really pleased to see that this increased attention that particularly in behavioral health, mental health, that's being devoted to um, uh, trauma-informed care because uh, I think it is it, it represents a real paradigm shift. And I, I think that we have two ways in which we have typically as society viewed human suffering. Uh, either we look at it and and through the lens of punishment. And so that, you know, that we, we see some form of suffering as an incorrigible, antisocial, problematic behavior. So, and and our response to that is is to punish, uh, or that we see, we look at suffering through the prism of pathology. And so we think that it's pathological. Uh, And so our view of it being pathological then informs our treatment protocols. And so what trauma-informed care actually provides a a third possibility, which is that that it provides a way of looking at human suffering through the lens of uh, pain and misfortune. And so that as one of the mantras in trauma-informed care is that it shifts the questions that providers ask. it moves the needle from being curious about what's wrong with someone to uh, shifting the focus of what happened to someone. So we're much more curious about, um, you know, causality, if you will, or etiology, uh, and not from a pathological lens in terms of dysfunction, but rather um, any series of circumstance, circumstances that disrupts someone's life. And uh, while on the one hand, I've been really pleased with uh, this increased attention to trauma, on the other hand, as a clinician, I've been a little bit dismayed that the entire trauma movement has spent uh, little time, uh, or maybe not as devoted as much attention as I hope it would have, to looking at what I, in my work, am referring to sociocultural trauma. And so what what I believe is that some people and some groups that are exposed to trauma very early on in life just through the look and the stroke of, 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 of birth. So I think that anyone who's born poor in our society, irrespective of what color they are, um, that certainly poverty has um, a number of um, functional positive aspects associated with but it's also a, a debilitating condition, particularly in a society of, of such opulence as, as is our society. And so what I believe is that anyone who's ever been poor, even if one is not poor now, um, 
remain somewhat um, have sort of the psychic scars of poverty. Uh, and so I do think that um, it makes sense to look at poverty uh, and those who are poor. If we look to them through a lens of trauma, then we, we, we have a sense about what happened to them and, and how what solutions we, we might consider just to help them along rather than casting aspersions on the poor saying, well, if you only worked hard enough or uh, you contributed to this condition. Uh, and the same is true for issues like race as well. And I just think any anyone in our society who has membership in a group that is stigmatized by the broader society, you have to grapple with some manifestation of stigma uh, every day of your life, second to second, that, that whether we think of it as trauma, that's a traumatic experience. And that can happen in addition to more classical manifestations of trauma like violence or uh, abandonment, abuse, neglect, those types of issues. And so... What it means now that those for healthcare providers who are looking at uh, the world through a trauma-informed lens uh, are spending a little bit more extra time trying to understand the complexity of people's conditions rather than reaching, you know, quick, ill-informed decisions about uh, what's happening in their lives. And I'll just say one other thing very quickly, that the implications of this on communities of color I think are huge because I just, from my point of view, I think our society at every station of the life cycle treats the suffering of people of color with punishment. Uh, I just saw some statistics just uh, last week about the preponderance of uh, preschool children of color who were suspended at preschool. Uh, And this this parallels what happens at every other level uh, in the educational system where kids of color and particularly boys are punished uh, much more significantly, much more severely than their white counterparts. Um, and this would be, in my opinion, a classic example of uh, the miscalculation of trauma uh, and our over-reliance on punishment uh, as a strategy for engagement. Um, so, and finally, I just say that I think that any trauma-informed work uh, also has to be race informed, um, and if it's not race informed, I think it compromises the extent to which it can be uh, wholly and authentically trauma informed. Well, I just think that the issue of really thinking comprehensively with your um, the people that you're serving that it's not just um, them coming in because they're feeling depressed, but there's all these other social conditions that they're bringing in with them. I know the providers have felt very, very frustrated with that. And then you find um, some of those providers who are just embracing that saying, okay, well now we have to take care and try to identify the other things that I can help you with, including your housing, including your immigration Mm -hmm. status. And so I do think it has provided providers a uh, much better view and also connection to other providers in the communities that they just can't have their mm-hmm. own offices or their own exam rooms. It's much more beyond mm-hmm. that. And you'll see more and more providers, mm-hmm. I believe, as they learn and improve in their care, that it's much mm-hmm. broader than just um, the 15 minutes or the half hour that they have with their clients and patients. Absolutely. Well, well I think that's when one of the major shifts, which I appreciate it, is around the location of suffering. And so historically, we have, lo- we have located the suffering of people inside of them so that 
we somehow think it's all psychological. And I actually have been on record in saying that I don't think anyone can understand me and all my complexity, for example, simply by looking at my psychology, that at some point you have to understand my ecology to fully understand me. And so I just think that when we think about trauma-informed, what it means is there's a greater willingness to look at the, e- the ecological context of, of people and how that might contribute to their suffering. Absolutely. You know, we're in a very important uh, timing um, today um, in the aspect of having a virus that um, is in the world, uh, the coronavirus. And um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the important things I learned, um, I did a little bit of earthquake response during the 89 earthquake. And, you know, I really learned quickly that the most vulnerable people, the people with the least resources, are the ones that are going to be most impacted in any kind of epidemic, any kind of disaster. Um, And so, you know, it worries me, of course, and like many others, um, for the individuals in our communities who may not have, you know, enough food for 14 days for isolation or even the ability to um, take care of others around them in that way. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how to care for oneself in this situation um, and any words of advice you may have, Dr. Hardy, for uh, providers today as they're contending with this and also um, individuals who may be listening to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you mentioning this. Uh, because uh, it is so multifaceted. I, I, I'm just finishing up a group just an hour ago where I heard um, just uh, a number of very powerful stories from um, Asian, just happened to be Asian women who were just talking about how their lives have changed dramatically since the outbreak of, of the virus. And this, and at this point, they're not even dealing with the perils of of contracting the virus. They're dealing with the the social response to it as Asians, uh, just encountering bigotry and aggression uh, on the subway. And and we're not talking about in some small remote corner of the U.S. We're talking about in New York City. This is happening. So, so there's that dimension, just in terms of how. Um, how these issues play out when they're connected to, when they get connected to communities of color, as opposed to uh, the white dominant society. I was saying to that group that I've I've seen where there's been uh, this massive closing of Chinese restaurants all over the country in response to the scare around the coronavirus. Um, And I was saying that now that it's been located uh, there have been these casualties and or, or infections at least in Italy. I'm really curious to see whether we'll see a massive shutdown of, of pizza stores and Italian restaurants. I, I doubt seriously that that will be the case. My point is that even if something like this that affects all of us, there's still these, in, these inequities that are connected to race. And so I would ask providers to be mindful of that, to be mindful of the ways in which that when we all are at feel some when the threat level for all of us go up, that it just means that oftentimes that, that people of color and the poor, those who are disenfranchised, seem to carry the heavier brunt of that because we get very 
self-focused rather than um, thinking in a way in which we, we take care of each other. So um, I would want providers to hold the saliency uh, and the emergency of this virus on the one hand, but also ask to perpetually ask themselves and what might be the ways in which communities of color and poor people, for example, um, might uh, end up bearing a bigger piece of uh, the uh, load around this issue. Um, even if the provider doesn't have an answer, I think just taking a moment to ask the question uh, is important. Um, all, sorry. You go, Doctor. I just want to say well, the other the other thing is I just also think that there is um, that there is this power in community, and I think that whether whether I'm talking about Latinx population, African American population, when I look at clusters of communities of color, one of one of the one of the most powerful pieces of medication on the market for dealing with uh, oppression uh, and trauma and misfortune uh, and depletion of resources has been being able to rely on community around relational connectedness. And um, I just think it's important for providers to continue to reinforce that message, to instill that message, to support that message uh, with the importance of people staying together and working together, uh, I think that's important. Uh, and also, uh, the final thing was just is keeping track of the distribution of resources and to, to pay attention to that and in terms of how the allocation of resources is, is almost never done equitably uh, and that it usually works out that those who have more usually get more. Uh, and those who are depleted get further depleted. I mean, I just I just think very quickly about what happened with Katrina uh, some years ago in New Orleans and, and folks, the people who were disproportionately left behind and, and even constituted their fatalities were people of color for the most part. And I still have the memories of those folks strewn across the rooftops and people would say, well, why didn't they leave when they were told to leave? And as it turned out, that a lot of folks who didn't leave uh, had no means to leave. That's right. And uh, and so I think if you're thinking about life through a common form, then you're also thinking about what might be the circumstances other than obstinance or stupidity that would have enabled a, a people to stay behind under such great threat. And so I just think that is a message for us to, to hold on to around the, the current virus as well. Absolutely. And, you know, these interviews, um, one of the things that has come out of uh, speaking to people like yourself, Dr. Hardy, is the mutual benefit societies, the micro societies that develop around um, common interests and common communities made a real impact mm -hmm. on many of the leaders who are in the healthcare today. Um, and, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that um, we're, to get through this, uh, you know, pandemic that will end up being probably endemic in our, in, our com in our communities throughout is to really think about helping others and watching out for others in your own neighborhood and then really trying to ensure that government and the uh, benefit communities who are really supporting others um, really uh, understand the importance of these um, 
small communities that and families who can help themselves just but giving a little bit of support they can really do a lot mm-hmm. together i know yes, my own experience absolutely. in the earthquake you know we had thousands of people homeless but it, we didn't see any uh there was no government no response groups um and the nonprofit that i was involved with and the community members we were the first responders for many of the um, common things that people needed and continued to do mm-hmm. that um, and at mm-hmm. one point, we all kind of looked at each other and said, I think we're on our own. And we, I think we need to figure <laughs> right. out how we're going to do that, right? So yeah. I do think that there's a strength in our communities, uh, particularly in people mm-hmm. of color communities, um, because we have that history of helping each other. And there are many mutual benefit societies that have started um, organizations, nonprofits throughout. And I think that's what mm-hmm. we have to have the hope in is that we'll continue to do that. And then those who have more power and those who have more education and those who are serving us um, will really look at how do you support the groups and their own leadership, yes. the indigenous leaderships in those communities to help each other. Absolutely. And I think to appreciate that our that our faiths are inextricably tied together. I mean, I, you know, I, if, and this sounds almost perverse to say, like if there's a potential um, flash of a, of a, um, a silver lining and something like uh, the current crisis, that it's, it reminds us that we're all equally vulnerable uh, and that, you know, that we're connected and that in our everyday lives that we tend to lose sight of that message. And so uh, I'm hoping that that there can be this generative spirit where we reach out and uh, and take care of each other, be there for each other. Yeah, it's an important message that we are one world in many ways. Right, exactly. Dr. Hardy, um, you are continuing to do your work. Um, share with us what you're uh, working on now. Well, I mean, I, you know, the work is there. I mean, I, in the current political climate, um, where I think hate and division are being sort of emboldened on uh, second to second, uh, I'm just finding myself now, and there's been just a number of breakouts of racial tensions on university campuses, um, some within the continental U.S., but also Canada. And so working with a number of universities around um, how to uh, weed university campuses out of of racism and where, um, you know, black and brown students and Jewish students can and students of the LGBT community can coexist and, and harmoniously on college campuses and doing a lot of that work. Um, also working with a number of nonprofits that are uh, trying to integrate uh, the sort of racially informed, trauma-informed uh, work into the, the core of their delivery of services. And so, so that's um, doing a great deal of work there with a number of um, nonprofits, universities, um, health organizations, and some um, city and county municipalities. And so it just seems in, that um, the work is endless now because I just think that it just seems like the, I'm sure the hatred and bigotry has already been, it's always been there. It's yeah. just being expressed much more overtly and much more robustly now. And um, it's really it is, emerging as a major disruptive force 
um, and in the lives of most institutions. Uh, and then academically, I mean, I'm actually uh, working on a book that um, I'm devoting to looking at whiteness as an ideology, kind of like patriarchy uh, or um, democracy, that, that looking at it as an ideology. So it's not as much about white people, although it doesn't exclude white people, but it also recognizes the ways in which all of us regardless of our individual hue, uh, swim in a sea of whiteness and how whiteness penetrates uh, systems uh, and how, you know, why it's so difficult for organizations to um, engage in effective organizational change around race uh, because in some ways that whiteness as an ideology remains uncritique and so that the the principles of whiteness are so seamlessly integrated into the policies, procedures, protocols, and practices of most organizations. Um, and so just wanting to sort of expose that a little bit and uh, as a way of uh, contributing another uh, dimension to um, this broader racial analysis in terms of uh, why and where we get stuck around these issues. So that's, um, that's a work in progress as well. That's great. Well, we look forward to that. Do you have a title for your book yet? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I, I have okay. a working title, but I, I, I know from experience now, I always come up with what I think are great titles, and I send the book to get published. Right. It's always a better idea. Exactly. Because they're, they're, I'm interested in philosophy, and they're interested in selling books. And so right. whatever, whatever the title is, it's usually what it is. Right. Well... Dr. Hardy, thank you so much for spending time with me today on Healthcare Untold. You are one of our heroes, and um, I really wanted to make sure that the, the audience heard your story and also all the great work that you're doing. And um, thank you so much for, you know, really working on justice issues to ensure that people have better services and that um, also that people get um, a real healing um, from their providers because they understand who they are and what happened to them. So thank you, Dr. Okay. Hardy. Um, really appreciate your time you're, today. You're quite welcome. I appreciate you asking me to do it. And you're my shero. So I was, I'm happy to do this. And um, good luck with it. Okay. Thank you so much. Dr. Hardy Take care. from Healthcare Untold. Thank you, Dr. Hardy. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. San Francisco, are you craving some authentic Mexican food? Not to worry, San Jalisco is open for takeout. You know you're craving that burrito macho or the mega vegetarian burrito? Maybe a quesadilla suiza? Or maybe a tostada, some enchiladas, a chile relleno, or some flautas? You know you're craving some authentic Mexican food. From the Mission District, San Jalisco Mexican Restaurant is the destination place for quality, authentic Mexican food. Currently operating for takeout only every Monday through Thursday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Friday to Sunday from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. For more information, you can find them online at anjaliscorestaurant.com 
or call 415-648-8383. Again, that number is 415-648-8383. The Padillas Reyes family thanks you for your support. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>